Hello, everybody. It's Thursday, January 12th. You're listening to uh, Chapo Trap House, or as it's known now, the Gas Burning Stove Resistance Hour. That's right. We are keeping the blue flame of humanity kindled in all our hearts. The Matrix is coming for your ovens. Please keep your stove on at all times if you are a listener of this show. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Uh, no, we are, we're not talking about gas burning ovens today. We are going to be talking about uh, Palestine, uh, the state of resistance, and the current uh, Israeli government, the currently newly formed Israeli government. And to help us uh, to help us dive into this topic, we are joined uh, once again by the uh, Palestinian journalist Mohammed Al Safan with AJ Plus. Thanks, Will. It's really good to be back with you guys. So, uh, I just want to begin here. Like, obviously, uh, for, for listeners of our show or anyone who uh, follows your journalism, uh, the conditions of uh, open oppression, brutality, and murder that exist for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip should be well known. So it's hard to imagine how things could get much worse. But, uh, Mohammed, uh, does this new Israeli government that was just formed, um, the, probably like the 10th government they formed in the last year or so, but does, how does this new, how does it, how does the new government the, that Netanyahu's just uh, formed, it, does this, in your opinion, uh, suggest a new level of genocidal intent on behalf of the Israeli government and Zionist project overall? Uh, it's good to be back with you guys. To answer that question, I'd say... <laughs> Potentially, but I think a better way of answering that question would be to look at a few things. Um, earlier this week, um, the uh, medical staff in the Gaza Strip uh, held an ambulance protest near the Israeli border or the boundary with Israel. Uh, they were protesting the fact that Israel is not allowing basic x-ray equipment into the Gaza Strip. For the last 16 years, Gaza has been under a blockade. That includes a blockade of medical supplies, medical equipment. Uh, leaving people uh, to die needlessly in hospitals. Uh, this is the kind of stuff you don't hear about when we're talking about, you know, conflict between Palestinians and Israelis. Um, and it didn't really make major news, this, uh, this ambulance protest. <clears throat> but th- that policy did not take place under this new extremist, scary government that ever- everyone's worried about. That took place under the old government, uh, which was made up of what many people considered less extreme uh, more centrist, uh, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. Um, I want to point out, point to another thing. A few months ago, or a month ago, sorry, Salah Hamouri, a French-Palestinian resident of Jerusalem, uh, was deported, stripped by the Israeli interior minister of his uh, right to live in his own country, in his own hometown, and sent to France, um, which is, this kind of deportation is illegal under international law. Um, you guys might remember uh, in May of last year, my colleague Sharina Bakhle, the probably the most well-known Palestinian journalist, uh, also an American citizen, uh, was murdered in cold blood in uh, the West Bank city of Jenin. Um, and then we also a- saw after that uh, Israeli police beating up uh, the people holding up her coffin, the pallbearers during her funeral. Again, all of these shocking incidents were, took place under the previous government, not under this, this one. Um, I want to point to something to another, another place in the occupied West Bank, Masafir Yatta, which is a collection of, it's a community, a collection of villages in the southern West Bank near Hebron. Um, Masafir Yatta, there's about a thousand people living there that the Israeli government has decided will be expelled imminently, ethnically cleansed to make way for an Israeli army firing zone. This uh, this firing zone was declared in 1980, so almost 30, what year are we in? Yeah, almost 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago. Um, and uh, for the last three decades, the people of Masafriyata have been going through kind of the Byzantine legal uh, process within the Israeli judicial system to try and get a, uh, a state or try to get that, that firing zone um, removed from their lands. And last year, the Israeli Supreme Court, which is often held up as kind of a paragon of Israel's liberal judiciary, decided that because the people who live in Masafriyata did not live in what it considered to be permanent dwellings, a lot of them lived in semi-permanent dwellings at the time, um, then uh, they have no right to live there and they will be imminently expelled. So all of this has happened over various Israeli governments in the past, not this current extreme one. Yeah, there, there's a lot going on with it. Um, it's shocking to me f- primarily that 
Yair Lapid was thought of as the face of like a more moderate and tempered Israel, because even 10 years ago, liberal Zionists held him up as an example of like the bad Israeli politician because he was such he had such racial extremist policies. I mean, he famously made a rap video about how Jews should not intermarry. Um, But just internationally, it seems like this the current like super right wing government that, as you've pointed out, policy wise is quite similar in all the points that matter with any moderate government. It's sort of a boon for the liberal Zionists living outside of Israel because now they can kind of point to like the bad type of Israeli government, even though, again, yeah, policies are identical, actions are identical, and the racial, you know, racial purist ideology is purely identical. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, when this government was announced, Netanyahu, who heads the government, tweeted the list of priorities for his for, for this new government, and it. Uh, <clears throat> mentioned the priority of settling the entire land, including the Golan Heights, which is Syrian territory annexed by Israel, um, uh, Judea and Samaria, which is you know the Jewish biblical name for the West Bank, um, and the Negev and the Galilee, which are areas inside what we consider today Israel proper, inside the Green Line, but have substantial uh, Palestinian populations of so Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. So this priority of settling this land across all of the land that Israel occupies or controls um, is absolutely, you know, with there's a straight line between that and, um, say, the nation state law, which Israel passed a couple of years ago, which was the which is akin to, uh, you know, it's a basic law, which is akin to a constitution in Israel. And the nation state law, for example, states that the right to self-determination in Israel is reserved exclusively for the Jewish people, not any Israeli citizen, but only the Jewish people. Um, going further back, there's a direct line between that and, say, the another basic law, the law of return, which allows that any Jew anywhere in the world can move to Israel and gain citizenship immediately, um, whereas a Palestinian who is living there and expelled has no right to do so. So there's a common thread. And Anyone who kind of looks at this current Israeli government and the makeup of it, and I think maybe we can get into some of the some of the really interesting characters who make up this new government and say, oh, this is, you know, this is kind of this is extreme. These are the bad guys and there's good guys on the other side. Um, This entire project has kind of led to this point and there hasn't been much deviation throughout the decades from it. I mean, you mentioned some of the, uh, the, the the new characters in this government, which uh, much ink has been spilled on. Obviously, uh, everyone knows, you know, Philadelphia's most famous native son, Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, he's back in power now. But like, you know, it seems like what you're saying is like uh, the, the, the roster of like uh, convicted criminals and lunatics in, in this uh, cabinet uh, certainly make for some good uh, news stories. But um, from what you're saying, what I gather is that like they are only carrying out um, just an unbroken extension of what Israeli policy has been for at least as long as I've been alive. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, we can talk about some of these characters and so much as how their career represents the the way Israeli society has moved, but it's always been kind of on a linear pathway towards where we are today, right? So, for example, you're talking about uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, probably the most notorious member of this new government. Um, Itamar Ben-Gvir is such an extremist that when it came for him to do his mandatory military service, which, you know, all Israelis have to do, um, the Israeli army exempted him, not out of any kind of, not because he opposed military service or anything, but because the guy was considered such an extremist racist against Arabs. The Israeli army was like, we don't, we don't want to deal with this guy. We're actually going to give him an exemption. This guy is now in charge of Israel's internal security. He's in charge of Israel's police force. So he went from being, you know, refused by the army to being in charge of its internal security forces. <laughs> I mean, how are the, how are the, I, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, don't have too much sympathy for him, but uh, what are the, what are the people in the Israeli security forces feel like taking orders from someone who uh, didn't even serve because he was too racist? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I don't pay too much attention to this kind of stuff, but one thing I know, one thing I've been, I've been kind of following over the years is there's been a concern amongst that kind of, amongst especially more secular leaning or, people would identify as liberal Israelis about the preponderance of um, religious uh, army captains and, and officers 
who are kind of there. There are certain yeshivas, and especially in the occupied West Bank, producing all these guys that have the same kind of messianic outlook as someone like Benigvir. So the fact that he's now in charge, uh, a lot of them, well, they kind of identify with his ideology, if not maybe the fact that he never served. And, you know, I mean, like, uh, he's a member of a party that tr- roughly translates to the Jewish Power Party. Um, he's been, you know, uh, convicted multiple times to, for, like, uh, incitement to terrorism and uh, racial hatred. He's a follower of uh, Rabbi Mir Kahan, who is sort of like a... Jewish <laughs> salute power, power to him. Sort of, yeah, like a, basically Jewish terrorist groups. Um, he yeah. had a a picture on his uh, desk, a framed picture of the guy who murdered uh, twenty nine Palestinians praying at a mosque back in the nineties yeah. on his um, living room wall. Yeah, yeah, on his living room wall. I mean, like, yeah, and and this guy, like you said, is now in charge of Israelis' internal police police force. Um, yeah, like, what are some of the, you know, like. Uh, this this is more or less a fulfillment of uh, Israeli government policy, but like you know, I mean, like it, it, this does seem to be in some way a, like a new escalation. Yeah, I mean, it's an escalation. So so Palestinians, I think, are worried about the kind of the physical the physical threat that someone like Benigvir or other members of this government can pose. As in, um, you know, he has already lobbied for open fire restrictions to be loosened. You know, anyone who listens to this podcast that follows um, the news out of Palestine uh, might be shocked to know that there are any restrictions on open fire regulations for Israeli soldiers anyway. But he wants to loosen that further, right? There, He wants to bring, uh, bring uh, to introduce a death penalty for Palestinian prisoners. Considering the fact that Palestinians are convicted by Israeli military courts at a rate of 97.7%, that's got people worried. Now, obviously, Israel does carry out the death penalty in a different way, just calls them targeted assassinations. But, you know, this is a guy who, um, used, like you mentioned, a follower of Meir Kahane. And I don't know if, if people know who Meir Kahane was. He was an American-born rabbi who um, his entire ideology was about uh, ethnically cleansing Palestinians that remained in Palestine, Israel, um, and doing so kind of, you know, often talked very publicly about his 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 murderous fantasies. So there was a there was a uh, I was reading about uh, in the in the early nineties during the first intifada where he told an audience in San Francisco that he wished he could become the uh, in charge of the Israeli army, the defense minister, so he could kick all the journalists out the West Bank and tell the Israeli soldiers they've got two days to do what they want to quell the unrest. I mean, this is this is the kind of guy that um, you know. This is this is who Benigvir venerates and this is who uh, the ideology that he comes from um so yeah there is definitely potential for escalation there's potentially there's definitely potential for bloodshed especially in the west bank where um unlike say gaza there's uh, there's a much more powerful military resistance that palestinians have um the west bank is palestinians are very much defenseless um so it will be interesting to see how that goes the other escalation will is in um kind of the blurring of the lines between the occupied West Bank and, you know, Israel inside the Green Line and what someone like Ben Gvir and his position represents. Because his position as Minister of Interior Security never existed. There was Minister of in, there was the Minister of Interior, there were, you know, then the army was in charge of the West Bank. Um, whereas Ben Gvir is now in charge of the police force that includes the border police that operates in the West Bank. So we're blurring the lines here. And that's a new development, right? Um, his, uh, another person kind of, another one of these characters, Bezalel Smotrik, who is from the, um, the religious Zionism party, another one of these really interesting, uh, characters. He's now the finance minister, but during his negotiations with Netanyahu to come on board and join his coalition, uh, he, for the first time, got Netanyahu to allow him to have a, a direct say in, kind of the running of the West Bank or the to appoint the the military uh, generals who run the West Bank. So um, even though he's the finance minister, he's going to have some, he's going to have a say over things like uh, the demolition of Palestinian homes in the West Bank, uh, the legalization or the retroactive legalization development and infrastructure in settlements across the West Bank. How like how would you how do you see uh, Netanyahu, who's you know cu- currently serving as prime minister, despite uh, 
being the subject of an ongoing corruption trial uh, for, uh, I don't know, uh, gifts he's accepted or all, so, so various frauds. But like, how would you regard like uh, Netanyahu's Likud party, their relationship with some of these like Jewish settler and like Jewish supremacist far right parties that, of, of some of the make up his cabinet that you just mentioned? Is this a tenuous alliance? Like, I mean, like how stable is this government and the uh, relationship between this far right coalition that Likud has had to patch together? Yeah, I think Netanyahu is looking out for Netanyahu. Right. So his whole thing with these guys is the reason why these guys have become legitimized and have become very mainstream is he's engineered that in many places. Um, Israel has a parliamentary system, which means that uh, it's made up of uh, many, many small parties as well as several large ones. But for any any party to win outright and govern, they need a coalition made up of these small parties, which gives people like Ben Gvir and Smotrich a lot of leverage over the larger parties. Uh, and they've used that well to get, kind of get what they want in their in 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 their agendas, um, but Netanyahu, I mean, him coming back to power is essentially about him staying out of jail, right? These corruption cases that have been hanging over his head for the last five years, um, you know, the the only way he has managed to stay kind of in power and out of out of jail is by continuously staying the prime minister of Israel. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to step down even while these uh, cases against him are ongoing. But his coalition partners are, um, they want to over, overhaul the judiciary in Israel, right? And part of that is making it easier for them to overrule any kind of uh, indictment that comes out against him. Yeah, the Netanyahu corruption thing, it's, I mean, he's not alone in this new government, nor really the previous one. But uh, Israel truly is just, Italy with unimaginably worse food. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, the good food, well, I'll stake a claim that it's our food first, but you know, discussion for a different. <laughs> yes. Day. Uh, Mohammed is claiming responsibility for pizza disco in Tel Aviv. That's <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, Alio Poutine, a Palestinian invention. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing that happened uh, I saw just this week was um, the banning of the display of Palestinian flags and like a yeah. riot that happened, I believe, in Jerusalem uh, where someone uh, just like displayed or waved a Palestinian flag in a crowd of people. Like, how do you, how does the, like the Palestinian flag, both as a symbol of the Palestinian people, but also as sort of a, a broader global symbol of resistance to, uh, you know, a, a dispossession, colonialism, and oppression of people by, you know, powerful military states? Yeah, I mean, the banning of the flag is, it's not the first time it's been banned, right? It was banned up until actually the early 90s, uh, when uh, Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization had, um, concluded the Oslo peace talks um, and the peace process began and um, Israel lifted its ban on, on raising the Palestinian flag. Up until then, um, it was a jailable offense. Or, you know, if you're a very excited Israeli soldier, you might end up injuring, maiming or killing someone for raising the Palestinian flag. This new ban, it's, it's a it's a Benigvir thing. The guy's a populist, right? He's playing to a very racist base. And it, it, there's... It's not going to change anything drastically on the ground, but the guy just wants to be, he has no policies other than his extreme anti-Arab racism, right? Um, and so uh, that's where that comes from. Your question about the symbolism of the Palestinian flag, it's interesting. I was um, um, just watching, I don't know how much you guys were paying attention to the World Cup in, in Qatar recently, but one of the things that stood out to a lot of people is kind of the massive displays of solidarity with Palestinians over there. And the flag was ever inside the stadiums outside. Um, and just go back to your question on that, Will, it's, it reminds, it's a reminder of kind of how much that flag uh, is a representation of kind of anti-colonial struggles across the world, especially as kind of Palestine is one of the few remaining colonial struggles uh, in the 21st century. Did you catch the uh, British guy in full yeah. St. George Cross Crusader oh, he's makeup? Great. Yeah, shell free Palestine. <laughs> he's a journalist. Just two things to say. It's coming home. I mean, I mean, I assume the guy was just drunk, right? But 
Um, I actually read an interview with him afterwards where he said that he'd actually visited the area and he knew and he actually could speak a few words of Arabic and actually said that, you know, he was very shocked by what he saw when he went to the West Bank. So it wasn't just a British guy being drunk on TV as usual. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, another thing I remember back from the World Cup was um, the the sort of highlight reels of just Israeli journalists getting the high yeah. hat from from soccer fans as soon as they identified themselves as like, oh, I, I'm, I'm here with Israeli. I'm here with the Israeli news. And they were just like just back turned, walked away. Yeah. It was free Palestine. Yeah, um, it was interesting because um, Qatar has no formal relations with Israel and like, say, the UAE or Bahrain, Egypt, etc. But it did open flights from Tel Aviv to Doha for the World Cup and allowed Israeli journalists to come in openly. Um, but you kind of saw what the popular reaction to their presence was, which is interesting because we talk about Netanyahu and Netanyahu often touts the Abraham Accords, you know, his deals, his normalization deals with the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan um, as kind of the pinnacle of his achievement and his continuous goal to achieve legitimacy amongst Arabs in the Middle East. And I think a lot of Israelis might have uh, drank the Kool-Aid a bit on that and were a bit shocked by the re- reaction to you know their journalists over there. Um, I saw an interesting reaction to uh, those clips as they were being shared uh, where someone suggested that uh, the Israeli journalists, they, they, like, they sort of know that they're go- they expect this reaction and they sort of court it. And this is for a domestic audience of um, uh, Israeli news consumers to sort of reinforce the idea that that the entire world is against Israel and that it's just sort of like reinforced, like, I don't know, uh, like you're rejected by everyone. So you have to like double down even more on Israeli nationalism and being an Israeli as like your primary identity. I think towards, I think after the first few times you could, a lot of people felt that they were trolling on purpose. So they'd be like, like, Oh, you know, I'm Israeli in the, in the, in the, in the midst of a crowd of people holding a Palestinian flag. Like what, what are you going to, what are you expecting to get out of that? Uh, one one clip that did make me laugh was a bunch of Moroccan fans, um, and Morocco is obviously signatory to the Abraham Accords. And you know when they turned away when he said I'm Israeli, this Israeli journalist is chasing them, yelling, "But we made peace. We made peace." <laughs> <laughs> your government it makes you have to like us. Yeah, your government your government signed the paper. You have to like us. Finally, ending the brutal centuries long war between Israel and Morocco. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> the war know, that no one thought could end. Second only in brutality to the uh, Bahraini-Israeli war. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mohammed, another thing that uh, you mentioned um, towards the beginning of our conversation that I want to ask you about is uh, the murder of journalist Shireen uh, Abu Akhla, uh, your, your colleague at Al Jazeera. Um, a couple months ago, Al Jazeera submitted uh, the results of a six-month-long investigation that they conducted to the International Criminal, Criminal Court as part of a formal request to investigate uh, the killing of you know, uh, Shireen Abu Akhla by Israeli forces. Um, what, is the, what is the status of that request to the ICC? And, 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 like, and how are you and your colleagues like, continuing to uh, put pressure on both the international community and the U.S. State Department to do something about this? Because, you know, the killing of an, an American, a Palestinian-American journalist who has had one of the biggest platforms in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm not actually sure where things are with the ICC investigation as of yet. I know these things do tend to take time. Um, but um, second part of your question about kind of the State Department, I've been I've been interested in how some uh, U.S. congressmen have actually kind of kept kept the ante up on this. And I know, for example, the U.S. State Department would like nothing more than people to forget and move on from this. But uh, you know, her her case has been raised repeatedly, um, especially by um, I forget his name now, Maryland congressman um, Jamie Raskin. No. Um, I'll find it. Basically, um, you know, the company's putting is is continuing to kind of raise her case and her profile and wherever it can in all avenues. Look, as a Palestinian, I was, I was also a a someone who was a colleague of Shireen's. I don't really expect justice to ever come uh, for her death. I don't expect to ever we I don't expect her family or her colleagues to ever find justice. What was interesting to me was how brazen the Israelis were about killing her. So her death was caught in camera, multiple cameras, right? You see her getting shot. You see as colleagues and passersby try to rescue her body. Um, Israeli snipers continuously shoot at them as well. And in the immediate aftermath, before that detail footage came out, 
I don't know if you guys remember seeing the footage that the Israeli army put out saying she was killed by a Palestinian gunman. They showed a random video of a guy just firing into an alleyway. Um, yeah. You know, and investigators on the ground immediately went, I was like, this alleyway is about, you know, a mile and like three left turns away from where she was killed. Right. Um, and, and the Israelis have continued to deny any kind of responsibility and slowly, slowly, slowly as kind of international outrage died away. They settled on. It was probably us and we didn't mean to do it. It was interesting that the FBI said they're going to open an investigation to that. I know in Israel, Lapid was very furious and said that he'd never allow any Israeli soldier to be questioned by anyone outside, uh, any outside investigator, non-Israeli investigator, which is an interesting thing to say when you consider how much the Israeli army is funded by the United States. Um, just going back a little bit, it was... Again, this surprises me also. Uh, Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen, who that's who it investigation. is. Yes. Um, you know, don't hold your breath, obviously. But one thing that I did think was kind of interesting after, you know, this obvious assassination. I do not know what else you would call this, but a deliberate fucking assassination of one of the most high profile journalists that they could find, it, you know, an absolute target of opportunity. Um, it does seem that like there is at least some willingness among some parts of the Democratic caucus and not just, you know, the one or two good congressmen that there are, but just in general. And I do. I wonder if part of that is blowback from Netanyahu's like clear alignment with the Republican Party in general. If you remember his address to Congress many yeah. years ago. And Trump before that. I mean, yeah. again, I do not. I'm not really holding my breath for any effective action by Democrats. But if the last midterm did show us anything, it's that uh, suburban liberals are the most powerful political force in the world. So if we get anything at all, it may be them. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of kind of like you know, surface level understanding of Israeli politics that we can expect most Americans to have, and I wouldn't expect them to have more. Um, I think over the last few years, Netanyahu has kind of been painted with the same brush as your your Trumps and, you know, um, favor of the show, uh, Jerry Bolsonaro. Those guys, you know, kind of make up a, a, a clique of right-wing demagogues that are easy to kind of just portray as the outliers in whatever liberal fantasy we have over what some of these countries are like. Um, so yeah, I, I think maybe that's part of it. Um, I think it's interesting that the Biden administration has tried as much as possible to just not get involved in anything when it comes yeah. to Israel and Palestine. Um, my reading of that is that the Biden administration knows there's, there's no win in this. You know, they don't have the, uh, the chutzpah of Obama or Clinton and thinking they're actually going to bring about peace. They know the reality on the ground. Um, but also, I think they know that there's a new generation of Democratic Party activists and supporters who are quite vocal on this more than any previous other generation. So there's no reason to antagonize them. Um, so I think that's why, you know, the State Department especially would just like to move on very quick, quick quietly from Shireen's killing. Yeah, there's clearly like, yeah, the Ned Price side of the State Department and Blinken, who I would just unambiguously rated as like the worst member of Biden's cabinet has definitely come down on what their decision is here. And it's n not really a departure from any previous administration and any previous right. Israeli crime. But this, this specific killing did at least seem like a cultural sea change where at least like some Americans are starting to see Israel in a sort of South African type light. It yeah, is becoming harder to do. It's harder if you're a normal Democrat, it's harder to have up one of those, you know, in this house, we believe no human being is illegal, blood, et cetera, et cetera, signs. Yeah. And just, it, you know, say nothing about Israel. I don't know how much stock people in the United States generally put into say Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch. But as a liberal, when those organizations and I want to say very belatedly come out and, you know, with these investigations reports that say Israel is practicing apartheid, there's very little you can do to argue against that, you know, mm -hmm. as a card carrying liberal. Um, I don't know if you guys saw 
Um, Harvard. Just about to bring up the the Ken yeah. Roth uh, the Ken Roth debacle at Harvard. But please go ahead. Oh, when no, Ken no, Roth. Yeah, when, when Ken, Ken. No, I was gonna say like you know if you don't know, uh, Ken Roth, the former director of Human Rights Watch, a guy I didn't think it was possible for me to have any less respect for, was uh, unceremoniously denied a fellowship at Harvard. Uh, based on uh, the, no no reason other than the incredibly tepid uh, criticisms of Israel that uh, Human Rights Watch uh, authored uh, under his name or during his tenure at Human Rights Watch, and like it's it's been a huge embarrassment for Harvard. But Mohammed, I mean, what does it say to you about how like the, the the contours of the pressure that the Israel lobby and their allies in America are feeling when someone like Ken Roth? is now become like, you know, like the face of, you know, anti-Jewish hatred and uh, conspiracism. Yeah. I mean, did you guys see Jonathan Greenblatt, the yeah. head of <laughs> yes. the ADL? Yeah. Uh, yeah. His, his characterization of Ken Roth saying, um, I got denied a position at Harvard because of, because Human Rights Watch criticized Israel is to call it another example of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, what? These are, I mean, the, the, these organizations that exist to kind of uh, promote and support Israel in the United States um, are so out of touch with where things are now. A lot of them are kind of using talking points from the early 90s and the 80s to this day. And, and like you said, like for a lot of people, especially uh, a lot of liberals with those signs, like you said, Felix, Felix it's, um, you know, you can't square those talking points with what you see on, in front of you on TV or on your screens. Yeah. I mean, we make a lot of hay about the <clears throat> brain destroying effects of the internet and smartphones and the overall, uh, just death to social relations they bring. But if there is one positive thing I can say about it, I, I, I do think that a non insignificant number of democratic, middle-aged parents have been you know kind of told by their kids that this is you know not a normal not even a normal shitty country this is you know the fourth or fifth reich depending on who's counting yeah i mean now there's a chance for someone to kind of start a grift as a deep anti anti-zionist deep programmer <laughs> yeah, yeah. i know just the guy <laughs> uh um before we move on, I mean, I don't know if you guys want to want to mention a little more about like Benigvir's biography. This is a really interesting guy, right? Oh, please. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to and I don't want to hold him up as like some kind of exception. Like I, you know, I was at pains to say earlier on, um, but he's, it's interesting how this guy is now so powerful uh, in Israel. So, I mean, Itamar Benigvir is his family is Iraqi Jewish, right? Which is I want to pause there for a second because often you hear people talk about um, Arabs and Jews being mutually exclusive. And if you actually look at some of the most extreme right wing uh, uh, elements in Israeli society, a lot of them are of Arab descent from Iraq, from uh, Morocco, from uh, Iran, not not Arab, but, you know, Middle Eastern, um, who immigrated to Israel in the 60s, 70s, some of them in the 50s. Um, And, you know, a lot of them faced initially a lot of uh, racism from kind of your Ashkenazi European Jewish Ashkenazi European Jewish elite who had built the state of Israel in the 40s and 50s. Um, and it's interesting because there was a lot of a lot of that racism was in kind of like looking down on these fellow Jews because they are Arab. Your culture is inferior, right? Your your food is inferior. Your everything is inferior, and it. This resulted over the years in kind of a backlash where reliably the most extreme kind of Likud supporting members of Israel are uh, of Israeli society are actually people who can trace the lineage back to Arab countries. So, yeah, the biggest public event in Israeli history, I think, was the the uh, funeral of Rabbi Ovadia, who is sort of the chief religious authority for Sephardi Jews in yeah. Israel and yeah. uh, the world over, according to some. And. This was a guy who said, like, I mean, I could I could I could legitimately see Kanye West saw things this guy said and it sent him down the path that he's on right now, (laughs) because this guy had said things like um, all non-Savardi Jews are cattle. They exist to serve us (laughs) like just insane shit, like cult leader shit. 
And he was, you know, his funeral was treated like it was like Billy Graham died. It was like a like a normal they treated it like a normal person as he was to several million Israelis. And it's the sort of track you mentioned of uh, Sephardi Jews, uh, specifically Arab ones, and their their journey from coming there and experiencing discrimination from the existing Israeli elite to their uh, graduation to being some of the most racist members of Israeli societies. It's, um, I mean, that really is the story of the modern state because you see the exact same thing with Russian and Ukrainian Jews. They were thought of as like the rednecks of Israel and they made up a huge part of the previous rightward most coalition government. Um, Yeah. You know, the Victor Lieberman types. Exactly. Uh, and actually, uh, the th- the third most spoken language over there after Hebrew and Arabic is actually Russian. Uh, you've got Russian newspapers, you've got um, Russian TV channels. Um, Avigdor Lieberman was actually uh, a Moldovan immigrant who, uh, who immigrated to Israel and uh, rose to defense minister at a time. And, you know, he was the last person that there was kind of like a moral panic amongst liberal Israelis about. Because this was a guy who who came to power and became defense minister, um, advocating for you know, uh, bombing the uh, the the Nasser Dam in 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 Egypt to flood Egypt, uh, executing uh, Palestinian prisoners. Uh, he once talked about chopping off the heads of disloyal Palestinians with an axe. This is a guy who just moved over from Moldova. Yeah, he he couldn't speak Hebrew. <laughs> uh, oh. Yeah. I uh, just uh, a few more things about uh, Ben Gavir that uh, I was just that we noticed in uh, preparing for this. It's like, okay, he he's a guy who um, uh, touts the fact that he's been indicted uh, fifty three times. He had yeah. a career uh, basically as a, uh, a I would just, like a, a defense attorney for uh, taking up the cause of people who have committed hate crimes uh, in in the occupied territories or against uh, Arab Israelis or Palestinians. His um, most. Yeah, I was gonna yeah, say. Go well, his most his most famous clients uh, were uh, a couple of teenagers who Israeli settlers who set fire to a Palestinian home in the West Bank, uh, killing uh, mother, father, and son, leaving a five three year old orphan boy. So this is, these were the people that Ben Gvir jumped up to defend. Um, and I, I think my favorite uh, little detail from his uh, biography is that uh, he reportedly bragged about stealing the hood ornament off Yitzhak Rabin's car two weeks before the assassination. <laughs> so it's actually, maybe he, if you he actually, has that on his desk. It's um, it's it's actually interesting because it was uh, it was on camera. So he was in Israeli news media bragging that he got the the I think it was a Cadillac uh, ornament off uh, Rabin's car. And I think what he told the, the, the reporters on camera was we got his, we got to his car soon. We'll get to him. And I think it was two year, two weeks later that, uh, Rabin was assassinated. Yeah. Uh, you're talking briefly about, um, the, the belief that, uh, Jews that come from, uh, Middle Eastern or Arab cult- countries or like their, their culture is inferior. We have, we have another culture on the inferiority watch in the uh, new cabinet. Uh, there is, a. Uh, the newly appointed deputy minister in the prime minister's office is a guy named Avi uh, Avi Maus. Maus? How would you how do you pronounce that? I pronounce it. Uh, Avi doesn't like the gays. <laughs> yeah, no, he <laughs> he does not like gay people. But uh, that that's not all on his list. He's found a new target. Yes, that's right. The Greeks. He has said the spirit of the Greeks and the Hellenists tried to instill in the Jewish people is the real darkness, and we have come to expel the darkness. So Hellenism, the Hellenistic world, is now I mean, uh, also ooh, did, been targeted. Do I smell Abraham Accord too with Turkey? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ben Shapiro needs to talk to this guy. He needs to explain to him about uh, Jerusalem and Athens and how they work together to make the world great. The basis of modern civilization, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, at least the only known case of um, pre-anesthesia uncircumcision. <laughs> <laughs> they did collaborate on that. Yeah, these guys are funny because I mean they're not funny, but they're funny because they just kind of they're they're so they're so myopic in their hatred that they they literally will invent things to be mad about and make that their entire platform. I mean. The latest thing now is is these guys want you know Benny Gantz and Air Lapid arrested for uh, for for being uh, for, for for being traitors to the state of Israel because they here's uh, a cause I can get behind. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Benny Gantz, uh, for those who don't know, was uh, the in the last government the uh, the uh, foreign minister and also the defense minister. Um, he was the uh, the chief of army chief of staff during the 2014 assault in Gaza, which killed uh, 2,500 Palestinians, including 500 kids. Um, and when he launched his political career, he launched it with an ad that was basically a voiceover over B-roll of the rubble in Gaza and him saying, I bombed Gaza to the Stone Age. So, you know, these are, the, and, 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 and Gantz is now considered kind of like a centrist compared, compared to the guys who are in power now. Um, I mean, like there are, there are, there are, you know, there's a, there's a long dishonor role of, like I said, crooks and weirdos in this administration, <laughs> but I mean, I'd like to like maybe now refocus on, I don't know, like uh, how you see or like the the people you talk to, like what are the what are the current contours of Palestinian resistance, both in the West Bank and Gaza Strip to their ongoing dispossession? I mean, you got people getting kicked out of their houses, you know, you got the ongoing construction of settlements and then just like the, the bombings and, you know, like the airstrikes and killings that are going on. I mean, like how is the. Palestinian Authority, like what? What is their like? How do they figure into all of this? What are they doing on behalf of the sure. people that they're supposed to represent? And then sure. broadly, like the Palestinian people, like how? I mean, this isn't nothing new, I suppose. But like, how? What, what is? What is the? Like, how is resistance continuing in in the occupied territories in Gaza? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the one thing to to kind of start this off with is to to note just kind of what the power disparity is, right? You've got uh, Israel probably has one of the strongest militaries in the world. In terms of uh, you know, in terms of the equipment and 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 the weaponry um, available to it, backed by the world's only superpower, against a population that is, for all intents and purposes, defenseless. Um, now, the last time we spoke in May 2021, uh, I think Felix, we talked about kind of the growing military capabilities of uh, Palestinian resistance, especially in Gaza. Um, and I think one thing I had said was that. After kind of their display during that that assault, um, it's likely that we're going to see kind of a growth of military resistance in other parts of Palestine, and we have, um, especially in kind of the northern West Bank cities of Nablus and Jenin, where um, over the last year, uh, small groups that have kind of grown and grown and grown, uh, small groups of young men who've kind of self-organized into first committees that, you know, armed committees that would defend themselves every any time the Israelis would raid the the uh, Jenin refugee camp or the old city of Nablus, um, but are now growing uh, in stature and uh, growing in their abilities. They've, you know, attacked Israeli settlements, attacked Israeli checkpoints, military checkpoints. And what we've seen is that um, because in the West Bank, they're the only kind of uh, method of resistance that we're seeing to Israel, ongoing Israeli colonization and Israeli military, their popularity has absolutely surged. And it's presented a huge threat to the Palestinian Authority run by Mahmoud Abbas. And the Palestinian Authority, we'll do a little history dive here, was set up after the Oslo Accords in 1994. The idea was that uh, it would be a temporary five-year uh you know, accord that would eventually lead to a Palestinian state and the Palestinian Authority would become uh, the kind of government in waiting. Um, what's ended up happening is we're now almost 30 years on from that. There's no Palestinian state and the, what the Palestinian Authority has become is wholly dependent on Israel to exist. And uh, might sound a little ironic to a lot of people, but um, the Israelis basically have cultivated a class of Palestinian elites uh, led by Mahmoud Abbas, that, uh, you know, whose financial business interests are tied to um, to Israel, right? Because Israel utterly controls every aspect of life in Gaza and the West Bank. These people know that, you know, if, they, if they're well-behaved and they're docile, then um, they will be rewarded, right? And I think, Matt, you're a student of history. You probably could tell me what what we call yeah. that class of people. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, Mahmoud Abbas is like, he's, I, I will not do him the service of calling him a fascinating figure. He's a, he's the operador of that. Right. He's a comprador. Like you've seen a billion other times in history, but, but he's just, so boring. The, 
he's horrifically boring, but the way in which he governs and the way in which he speaks and his his public persona is yeah. that of like a Chicago like 30 term Chicago alderman <laughs> put on the international stage. That is what I've always found so fascinating about him. Just his his sheer lack of capability or charm or anything. Absolutely. But, uh, speaking more uh more towards the original point you're making about uh like increased Palestinian military action yeah. resistance. I actually you mentioned the Hablets. I I don't know if this was fully confirmed. I saw it in a few places, but um, didn't resistance forces push the IDF out of Nablus at least for like a night? That was a pretty big deal. If so, what's ha- what's happened? What's happened with what's happened with um, kind of the, the this group in Nablus? They call themselves the Lions Den, and they're they're interesting because it it literally is just a bunch of guys in their early twenties and thirties who've managed to you know to 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 get guns, whether it's through, you know, weapon smugglers or on the black market, a lot of them getting guns from, uh, <laughs> from actually Israeli army issue rifles. So you, know, you can see there's a lot of corruption in the Israeli army there as well. Um, and what they've done is as they've grown, as they've shown kind of the ability to stand up uh, and fight back during these raids is uh, they've become more and more sophisticated over time. They call themselves the lions. Then they're, not really affiliated with any of kind of the the current the, the more well-known Palestinian parties um and um the Israeli army has raided Nablus continuously um over the last year um arresting and assassinating some of these guys some of their leaders but they've also developed the ability to repel some of these invasions especially in the old city because the geography helps it's an ancient old city um alleyways very you know very difficult for militarized vehicles to enter. Um, but yeah, so they're growing, their capabilities are growing. The same is true in Janine. Um, but on the kind of the Palestinian authorities role in this, because I think it's very important. The reason I keep talking about the popularity of these groups is, and the threat they pose to like Mahmoud Abbas is over the last few months, there's been a, an insane kind of arrest campaign against anyone who might be affiliated with these guys or even, you know, Prisoners who former Palestinians who were formerly incarcerated in Israel on account of any kind of resistance activity or anti-Israel activity, the Palestinian Authority has been you know rounding them up. Um, there, uh, there is a site in Jericho that a lot of these guys are sent to, and it's very notorious. It's basically a torture site um, where a lot of them are sent to to kind of extract confessions or information that's then passed on to the Israeli intelligence services. So that's where the Palestinian authorities' role is lying. And you're seeing kind of Mahmoud Abbas and his authorities' popularity uh, depleting more and more as, as this goes on. Something that I think is pretty interesting in like the few videos that I have seen of like this sort of new wave of resistance in the past couple of years that we talked about last time is um, it, it seems like it seems less like you know, conventional military, obviously, because, you know, why would you go go for a conventional military confrontation with the IDF, obviously, but it's not even like quite guerrilla warfare. It's almost like they're kind of doing drills from what I've seen, like on violent settlers, on Israeli soldiers. It's very small scale, but it's like it's very effective. And something that I've been thinking about a lot with the IDF in particular, and their capabilities for more open conflict rather than just, you know, bombing a captive population, is that they faced the same kind of problem that Brazil's military faced a while ago, in which when you have a military whose entire focus has become internal security, repression, where basically your any given infantry soldier is a prison guard, he's a CEO, he's a hack more than he is a soldier. You lose this capability when you actually have to engage in firefights. And I think we are kind of seeing that more and more, not to the point where I feel comfortable making any like broad proclamations or predictions towards an overwhelming victory anytime soon. It's still a, a terrible, grim situation, but there is this sort of rattling of the armor 
of the Israeli war machine. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a military expert, but what I can say from kind of observation over the last 20 years or so, the last time the Israeli army faced any kind of external enemy in open warfare was Hezbollah in 2006. Yeah, and the Israeli army did not achieve any of its objectives in that in that adventure, right? Um, now, recently, Gaza, Gaza is, I struggle to kind of convey to people how tiny Gaza is, right? Gaza is, at its widest point, about six miles wide, at its widest point. In many places, it's only three miles wide. It's about 30 miles, uh, less than 30 miles, maybe 20 miles long. It's a tiny, tiny territory, right? And within it, um, you've got kind of Surrounding it, you've got a wall, you've got fences, you've got remote control machine guns. You've got, if you, the last time I was in Gaza was many years ago, but even back then, the constant thing that hits you as soon as you enter is the buzzing of drones, right? We're talking for about two decades now, just constant surveillance by Israeli drones. The buzzing is so loud, it just takes over every aspect of life, right? And, you know, travel restrictions, um, uh, no electricity. The, the the only power plant was bombed in 2006 by the Israelis. They never allowed it to be fully repaired. Um, so you only get a few hours a day of electricity. And despite these circumstances, the military capabilities of the resistance groups in Gaza has gone from uh, kind of like these homemade, you know, AK-47s and homemade uh, uh, mortars to um, rockets that can, that are launched from underground and can hit kind of any point within Israel, you know, or at least they have the, the range to hit any point within Israel. So that trajectory is very interesting if you're if you're looking at kind of the military capabilities of um, resistance groups in Palestine. Um, you know, in 2005, when the Israelis withdrew from Gaza, the longest range weapon that Palestinians had was a homemade rocket that you'd have to, uh, it was basically a pipe with a, with a conical kind of head um, and no warhead, there's no payload on it. It just had a propellant and you would light it almost like old, old timey cartoons. You'd light it with a fuse, you put it on a tripod and, you know, you try not to get killed by a drone before it, it launched. Um, and many times the guys would not even survive that. Um, we've reached a point now, um, you know, less than 20 years since the Israelis have left Gaza where, you know, these groups can launch by remote control from underground bunkers a rocket that can hit any point within Israel. So that's an interesting development in terms of the capabilities. But that's all still confined to Gaza. And I think the Israelis, for uh, for the most part, realize that, hey, we're not ever going to be able to completely, you know, defeat the Palestinian resistance groups in Gaza. Um, but as long as they're confined to there, we can manage the situation using things like the blockade and the humanitarian crises over there. The bigger risk is the development of any kind of capability in the West Bank. Mohammed, I, I, I guess like um, I, I want to ask like in, in terms of like what I think speaking about the contours of resistance, like for the life of Palestinians, certainly in Gaza and, and, you know, in the occupied West Bank as well. I mean, it seems to me it's not so much that the Israeli military can kill you at will or just give your house to some asshole from Brooklyn if they want to. But it just seems to me like. A, like like a, like all oppression works like a comprehensive way to just deny any human being of any possibility of a dignified life of having mm. any self respect. Like, how do you see like whether it's the lion's den or other forms of uh, like c- civil protest or uh, 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 civil protest resistance? How do you see that as like rekindling a dignity and a self confidence among the Palestinian people and the threat that that represents to the uh, Israeli project and government? Yeah, I mean, when we go back to what I said earlier about kind of the West Bank's role, uh, sorry, the Palestinian Authority's role in maintaining calm and quiet for, uh, on behalf of the Israeli state and Israeli security forces, um, it's allowed, it's basically allowed the Israelis to go almost, uh, to take on every kind of village or every home individually, right? They've broken the bonds of solidarity. Um, part of that is physical, like literally physical. You go there, this is again, another tiny territory that's, uh, broken up with dozens and dozens and dozens of roadblocks and checkpoints that you can't navigate without permission from Israeli soldiers. Um, so it's allowed them to kind of chip away at Palestinian um, steadfastness. You know, this this guy living in this home by himself who, you know, we want that house. Well, we're going to keep chipping away at him. We're going to 
you know, make his life a living hell. Some of it is actual policy, right? Some of it, Israeli ministers often talk about, we're going to make their life so difficult that they leave. Um, you see it in Jerusalem, especially, right? Uh, we, you know, the last time we spoke, there was the uh, the flare-up because of the attempted evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, the Jerusalem neighborhood where um, Israeli settlers had decided, hey, we own this and we're going to, this land belonged to us once upon a time and we're going to take it back. Um, a place, by the way, where uh, Benigvir set up a, a folding picnic table and called it his his uh, called it his office, right, <laughs> right in front of people's houses over there. But we're a long way away from seeing any kind of turning point in this situation, right? Um, one thing I like to think to, to to tell people is when we're talking about the history of colonized nations and freedom movements, um, uh, oftentimes. It took several decades, if not centuries, before a coherent anti-colonial movement was able to grow and take advantage of extenuating circumstances that allowed them to hit at the weak points of uh, the colonizing uh, entity. Um, you know, colonization of Palestine, beginning from the Nakba in 1948 till now, is only in its seventh decade. And it's only in the last kind of 20 to 30 years that we've seen any kind of movement towards independent um Palestinian resistance. Before that, it was kind of tied to uh, the you know surrounding Arab regimes, um, Pan Arabism uh, that you know the PLO and Yasser Arafat were living all over uh, abroad and promising to liberate Palestine from abroad. So it's a very nascent movement. We talked about the military cap the the growing military capabilities of resistance groups in Gaza, but in other places, um, you know we're still we're still in the early days. Um, in 2021, I don't know if you guys remember, but one thing that was very interesting was when there was a call for a general strike amongst all Palestinians living in both the West Bank, Jerusalem, and within, you know, the Green Line within Israel. And it was observed. And for one day, a lot of Israeli, you know, Israeli economy ground to a halt because it relies a lot on um, Palestinian labor in many places. Um, but it also kind of it was a spark for a growing solidarity that the Israelis have worked very hard to, to dismantle. Um, Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship and live within the Green Line make up about 20% of Israel's population. And there's been a very deliberate and ongoing attempt to kind of separate their Palestinianism from their brethren in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and what we saw was that, you know, that solidarity and that identity was still there. Um, we saw also in places like uh, Lid, which is a town just outside Tel Aviv, where um, kind of the reverse happened, where you had a lot of Israeli settlers move in from the West Bank into Lid to counter any kind of growing Palestinian nationalism or identity over there. It resulted in violence and, and clashes over there. But the, the growth of any kind of solidarity movement requires, I think, several factors, among them, you know, uh, external solidarity. And what we what I mean by that is um, solidarity that makes that makes it costly for Israel to maintain these policies, and I think that's the big that's the most effective thing that can change the tide soon. Mohammed Al Safan, uh, Felix, and Matt, unless you have any further questions, I think that's a great place to leave it for today's episode. No, I agree, uh, Mohammed. Thank you so much again. Um, yeah, this was um, incredibly informative as always, but it's. Very nice to talk about this subject, uh, typically very depressing subject, and actually hear some type of hope and strategy going forward. So I appreciate the time. Yeah, I appreciate you guys' time. I appreciate you guys uh, always giving people uh, the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, Mohammed, if people would like to uh, follow some more of your journalism or hear from you on this and many other topics, uh, where should they go? What should they do? You can find me on Twitter, M-A-L-S-A-A-F-I-N. Um, trying not to be a poster, so your mileage may vary when you follow. All right, Mohammed, thanks again for your time. Uh, till next time, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.